we talked about Easter joy, specifically the joy that comes from being in covenant relationship with Jesus. And so this week I wanted to sort of dig a little bit deeper into this idea of covenant as we wrap up this, this sermon in James going through real wisdom when it comes to real life. We'll start in Matthew 28. If you stand with me one more time, I know this is like spiritual musical chairs, getting your blood flowing there. In, online you can do the same thing. We're going to be in Matthew 28. This is what we call in Christendom the Great Commission. It is what we hinge so much of the mission and vision of our church on. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If not, we got it up on the Sky Bible. This is a phenomenal time if you're a sports fan because basketball and hockey and baseball are going. The Heat look decent middle of the pack. The Panthers look great. The Marlins, does anyone watch baseball anymore? I have no idea. How are the Marlins doing? They're playing. Okay, well, that's what we know. Case in point, I've proved my point. Matthew 28, if you're ready, say, let's do this. Verse 18 is where we'll pick up. Jesus came, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Read it with me. Therefore, go and make disciples. You're like, I always hear you guys talk about that. Yeah, we didn't make that up. We just kind of stole that holy plagiarism from Jesus. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, this is a great promise, by the way, and surely I am with you always. Somebody needs to hear that. You feel like God, did you just forget about me? Surely he is with you always even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Jesus, just like Jamie prayed at the beginning, remind us of your goodness this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Turn to your neighbor, say, get ready. Get ready. Type it in the chat, say, get ready. Kids, kids, kids. Some of you parents are like, you don't need to say anything else. Kids are a trip. Sometimes, parents, can I get an amen? Amen. Our, uh, our oldest, Liam, is four and a half going on five, and this boy is strong, opinionated, passionate, articulate, strong-willed. I have no idea where he got these attributes from, but this kid, is he is a trip. Uh, my mom, we, we call her Nana. Some of you know my mom. You've gotten to meet my mom, and so um, we call her Nana, and so he gets to hang out with Nana about once a week, and my mom, in addition to all the incredible things that she is wildly proficient at was a uh, a kindergarten teacher and so she sets up all Liam literally says what activities do you have ready for me today Nana I'm like wow she's got activities I'm like we're just trying to survive Nana's over here with activities right I'm like dang next level and so Nana sets up the activities and multi-sensory and all these things and it's great and it's amazing but I remember she came to me one time and she's I was like hey you know after after he was there with Nana at Nana's play school uh, preschool I was like Nana how did Liam do she said oh he's so sweet he's great she said but you know he kind of bosses me me around like, really she's like yeah you know not bad but like he shows up and he's like okay nana here's what we're gonna do and he has like a little agenda i'm like yeah that's called nancy's kid right there that's what that is because my wife is a planner and he's like okay so we're gonna do this and then she's like i'll make suggestions like oh liam well why don't we go play with you know with the blocks or with the play-doh he's like no 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 nana that's gonna come third first we have to do this and then we have to do that and i'm like wow and she's like yeah you know so i was like well mom like you are the adults so just like adult it with him. She's like, oh, I tried. I tried that. I was like, Liam, Liam, you are not the boss. Nana is the boss. This is Nana's house. Nana is the adult. Nana is the boss. She said, he looked at me. He's like, Nana, you are the adult. 
but I'm the boss. Woo! I was like, ooh, we're still discipling this boy, obviously. Super sweet. Very opinionated. I, I want to use this as an operating analogy and metaphor because we find ourselves in an interesting moment culturally. If, if you're a, a North American watching, and shout out and big love to Guyana, I'm sure you can connect with this context. But, but especially for us as Americans, we, we live in a context right now where people are more open to spirituality than ever before. How many of you have a friend who's spiritual? Show of hands, you've got a friend who's spiritual. It's not fully defined. Maybe it doesn't fit in some uh, religious segment, but, but they're, they're spiritual. We live in a culture that is increasingly spiritual as long as our spirituality is on our terms. We live in a culture where spiritually we say, hey, listen, I, I'm down with the G-O-D. Creator God, I'm cool with that. I'm Spirituality, man, I'm definitely spiritual, but I just need to be clear. When it comes to my spirituality, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. And the question that I want to answer in this Real Wisdom series is, does that work with Jesus? Does that work with Jesus. I think we have a, a culture we mentioned a little bit last week there where there are lots of fans of Jesus, where, where Jesus has often been friend-zoned in, in the sort of, yeah, I'm cool with Jesus. You know, it's good. We're all good. Jesus is my homeboy. But, but, but does this idea work with Jesus? Why or why not? We talked last week about covenant and the joy that comes with being in covenant relationship with God. This week, I want to take a little bit more of a focused, deep dive on covenant. Turn to your neighbor and say, Covenant. Type in the chat, say covenant. Three stopping points along the way. The first one is this. I want to talk about the nature of the covenant. The nature of the covenant. Here's my burden. Last week on Easter weekend, I, I, I used the operating analogy of the marriage covenant that exists between husband and wife. The marriage covenant. And, and I sort of made the point that it's possible to, to really like someone, to really be interested in someone, to really be enamored with someone, to maybe even really love someone, but not be married to that someone. You guys all understand that can happen, right? You've got those friends that have been sort of engaged for 17 and a half years, and you're like, what in the world is going on? Like, it's possible to have genuine, deep affection or affinity towards someone and not be in covenant. And I sort of use the, the, the conjecture, if you will, that similarly, it is possible to be interested in Jesus, to really like Jesus, to be gravitating to Jesus, to be drawn to Jesus, even to love Jesus, but not have covenant relationship with Jesus. You guys remember this? You still tracking with me? All right, good. All, all seven of y'all. We must, we must come into covenant. It is of the utmost importance, but I need us to understand that this covenant is fundamentally unique and distinct. This is not just any covenant. See, in order to enter into covenant relationship, if, if a couple's gonna get married, for example, there are specific things that they have to do. There's a way that this covenant is enacted. We must know the nature of of the covenant with God. See, the marriage covenant is, is all about uh, mutual submission. In Ephesians 5, where it, where it kicks off and Paul is sort of breaking down what marriage is supposed to look like, he begins his whole diatribe with, submit yourselves one to another out of reverence for God. It's sort of like, hey, listen, you're going to go back and forth, and, and you're going to come into moments where you, where you don't see eye to eye, and, and where you disagree, and, and where you're trying to figure out what, wh whose way are we going to go with, and how's this going to happen? And it's like, well, you know, you're, you're submitting to one another, and you've got to figure it out, and you've got to navigate through this and it's relationally engaged. And, and so that's kind of how marriage looks. That's the covenant of marriage. So what's the nature of the covenant with Jesus? 
And I need to give you an operating word that is of the utmost importance that we do not use in our culture, but it matters to God. The word is lordship. The nature of the covenant with Jesus is lordship. Matter of fact, if you're here and you believe it, could you just say, Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord. You heard that before in church, right? People kind of toss this out. Jesus is Lord. You're like, what does it mean? I'm like, I don't know, but I heard it a bunch. Okay, context matters. See, in the ancient world, and specifically in the early church, one of our longings is to be a book of Acts church in the 21st century. They, this is where they began using this phrase, Jesus is Lord. But this phrase did not come out of a vacuum. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, there was another phrase that preceded Jesus as Lord. Anyone know what it was? Caesar is Lord. In the Greco-Roman world, Caesar was seen as, as basically a god. He was above all, and he was in all, and he was through all, and he would, by him everything was, was, was happening and created. Are you seeing some of the common language here? And so the, the refrain that would be commanded often to be uttered by the subjects of his empire was, Caesar is Lord. You want to go into some markets? The only way you're getting in is Caesar is Lord. You want to engage in trade? The only way it's happening is Caesar is Lord. It was an intentional methodology by these emperors to make sure that everyone knew your emperor gave you what he's got and he could take it away in a heartbeat. Caesar is Lord. He's the boss. He's in charge. If you feel a certain way, but Caesar says otherwise, guess who wins? Caesar, every single time. Now, these early followers of Jesus say, wait a second, wait a second. Caesar isn't Lord for us. Caesar isn't Lord in reality. Yeah, the, the, the Lord holds the hearts of the kings, and he moves them wherever he wishes. That's from Proverbs. No, no, no. Caesar isn't Lord. This is what they started to say. Jesus is Lord. Now, before you think this phrase was just some haphazard thing they would, they would say to, to sort of jump on the latest trend, this was like the ancient version of trend hacking. They're like, whoa, everyone's talking about it? We're going to jump on it too and get, get some notoriety in our little religious sector. Here's what would happen. If you dared to utter the phrase, Jesus is Lord, you are putting your life on the line immediately. We say it now, we're like, oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm going to go live my life like Jesus means nothing to me. But no, Jesus is Lord. Like, like it's a magical incantation. It was not a magical incantation. As soon as the early followers of Jesus uttered the words, Jesus is Lord, they were signing their death warrant. If you don't believe me, you think I'm talking hyperbole, Nero, one of the emperors, would literally take these followers of Jesus and he said, I'm giving you one more shot. Caesar is Lord right now or you're dead. They said, we can't say it. Caesar is king. Caesar is emperor. We honor his leadership authority, but he is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he would take them and he would put them on poles and use them as human torches in his garden. This is history. See, we say... Jesus is Lord, but I don't think we hear it like the ancient church would have heard it. You're like, why, why does this matter so much? Here's why this matters. That was their context. Do you understand now that that phrase had very deep, meaningful significance if someone were to utter it over their lives? You, you guys tracking with me now? Like, you're not just haphazardly like, oh, yeah, sure, Jesus is Lord. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to get yourself killed? Like, that, that, was, the, that was the reality there. See, here's our context. We don't live... In an empire, we live in a democracy. 
And if we are not circumspect and careful, we bring our democratic ideals, not just to our politics, but to our spirituality as well. We're cool with Jesus. And then and a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of Muhammad. And, and then we'll, we'll mix in a little bit of that TikTok guy that I really like. And then throw in my auntie because she seems like she's got some good thoughts. And we'll, we'll stir it all up in a pot and see what comes out. And it is a fundamentally different worldview from the first followers of Jesus who experienced God's kingdom unlike anything that maybe we've ever seen in the known world up to that point. And I do not think it is a coincidence. See, a covenant with Jesus, here's where I'm going, the covenant, the nature of this covenant, a covenant with Jesus is not a democracy where the most votes wins in my spiritual life. A covenant with Jesus is a theocracy where there is a king and he is the Lord. Amen. Now, I need us to be honest. We're going back to our people of our word. Let, let, let's, let's be a little bit more circumspect. If, if I, John Lash, am being honest, let's talk doctrine. I, I personally do not like the doctrine of hell because I love people that don't know Jesus yet. I want everyone to have an incredible, I want everything to turn out great for everybody. By the way, so does God. He desires all people to be rescued and come to a knowledge of the truth, says the Bible. But, but I'm like, man, there's lots of stuff in the Bible that if I could just pick and choose, if it was a democratic process to choose which one of these things we go with, I would maybe change some things. But I'm not God, and I don't understand like God does. See, here is the danger. If I'm being honest, when I, when we, when you disagree spiritually, when it comes to spirituality or sexuality or finances, I want Jesus to agree with me. I'm like, man, Jesus, that's what you said about sex outside of marriage. Man, Jesus, that's what you said about dealing with money. Man, Jesus, that's what you said about eternity and where people are going to spend. Man, Jesus, well, that's not what culture says, and that's not what my best friend says, and that's not what my cousin says, and and I want Jesus to bend his will to my cultural predilections. There's an SAT word right there. But it doesn't work that way. Scripture is clear, true covenant with Jesus, true covenant relationship with Jesus, which, by the way, is the only place where the joy comes. I'm preaching this message because if you're still here and you're like, well, man, I'm cool with Jesus, Pastor John. I'm down with Jesus. I say Jesus is Lord all the time. I've got it over my mirror so it gets marked across my head every time I'm brushing my teeth and I got it in my car. I say it all the time. True covenant relationship with Jesus, which is where the joy comes, means when I disagree with him, I go with him every single time. This is what it means. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to who? Me, Jesus said. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. I am not his equal and I am not his peer. I am not simply his buddy or his homeboy. He is my father, but I am his subject and I joyfully submit because Jesus is Lord. Jesus said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the nature of this covenant relationship. Okay. That's strong. But I get it. So what about the, the, the sign? See, covenants in the ancient world, they always had a sign. If we're, if we're using the operating analogy of a marriage covenant, the marriage covenant has a sign. Anybody know what it is? This is not a trick question, Nancy. It's a real question. What is a sign of the covenant relationship between two human beings? 
There it is. Come on, y'all are with me. It is a ring. What is the sign of the covenant with Jesus? Point number two, the sign of the covenant. I'm going to start somewhere, and I won't end there, so don't freak out. Colossians 2, he, being Jesus, is the head over every power and authority, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You're like, wait a second. Where are we going with this? All the men just got real nervous and all the females are very confused. Here's Paul's point. In the same way that the ring is a sign of the covenant of marriage, Circumcision was the sign of the covenant for the Jewish people and the people of God. And Paul says now baptism is the sign of the new covenant with Jesus. Can somebody say praise the Lord? Praise the Lord. You're like, I did not know where we're going to go with this altar call, Pastor John, but I'm sure glad that took a U-turn real quick. Praise the Lord. All of God's people said amen. I got to back up here, though, and, and build some foundational knowledge because... In the same way that we could talk about the nature of the covenant and Jesus Christ is Lord and just be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. That's, that sounds cool. I'm going to get the tattoo and not really know what that means. Baptism has the same reality. See, in the ancient world, they would have been wildly familiar with the overarching and powerful symbolism and significance of baptism in ways that us modern century people are not. And so we need to build context to understand this properly. Here's the first thing. Way before baptism was a Christian thing, it had been a Jewish thing for thousands of years. I don't know if you knew this. Jesus, Jesus did not institute some new thing like, hey, I'm going to do this like, like slam dunk with water thing. And it's going to be real cool. And the disciples were like, whoa, that's awesome. Let's do it. Like baptism was a thing. Like it was a thing thing, like thousands of years kind of thing. And so when, when the early church would call and their main call was to repent and be baptized, they all knew what that meant unlike, well, us because we... We, we, we don't know it like that. I remember having a conversation with my father, Rabbi Neil. I've talked about him a lot, one of my faith heroes and um, probably the wisest and uh, like a Bible scholar, so much wisdom. And so I was like, Pastor Mike and I were, were talking with him a few years ago and we're talking about baptism. We're going to preach a sermon on baptism. I was like, Dad, hit us with like the, the ancient Jewish significance of baptism. Check out how rich in significance baptism was. Baptism represented new life. Like when a, a woman's water breaks in the process of childbirth, it represented cleansing. The water washes us free from sin. It represented a change of identity and authority. In the ancient world, especially in the Jewish custom, a woman would get baptized into the name of her husband, symbolizing I'm now joining a new family. I'm under new authority. If you were going to follow a new teacher, you would get baptized under their authority. Baptism represented a shift of community. If you had Gentiles or God-fearers who said, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the real God, and I want to go his way, they would be baptized to symbolize coming into this new faith community. Paul says that baptism represented like the grave. It represented a death-to-life reality. The waters were like going under the grave, and you were resurrected into a newness of life. Baptism wasn't just some sign, and it wasn't just some arbitrary symbol because they needed a bath that day. Baptism was part of God's visceral, holistic, tangible way of shifting people into their new identity. You're dead to sin. You're alive to God. You're clean. You're chosen. You're a member of the new family. You are submitted to the lordship of Jesus. This was a huge deal to God, and this was a massive deal to the early church. 
One of the things we always talk about is we long to be a book of Acts church in the 21st century. All throughout the book of Acts, there was a consistent refrain when it came to talking about the kingdom of God. Two things they always told people to do. Y'all know what they were? Repent and what? Be baptized and pray. They love to pray. But they would call people immediately before they jumped out to pray to repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. It was not an optional package. Do you want leather seats? Do you want to be baptized? It was, it was the call. But modern Christians, we, we treat it like an option. If we're being honest, much like we treat much of the way of Jesus when it comes to sexuality or, or ethics or, or greed or truth-telling or whatever the case might be. And we do this because... We have adopted, genuinely adopted, Jesus as guru and Jesus as teacher and Jesus as thought leader and Jesus as influencer, but not Jesus as Lord. See, Jewish people, they, they knew. In the ancient world, they, they knew what baptism meant, which is why it was, it was clearly a part of every single call to faith in the book of Acts. Here's why. Because Jesus explicitly said to make it that way. Point number one, we must know the nature of the covenant. Point number two, there is a sign of this covenant. And point number three, there is a response to the covenant. Here's what I want us to do. In response to the gospel, the good news of the grace and mercy of God poured out abundantly when we did not deserve it, I want us to be disciples who do what Jesus said. Remember our mission here at Greenhouse, it's it's simple. We plagiarized it from Jesus. We want to go and make disciples. We want to help ordinary people become passionate followers of Jesus. Another way of saying that, a passionate follower, an active student following Jesus is a disciple. Here's what Jesus said, Matthew 28. He said, therefore, go, and what does it say? Make disciples. Go, and what does it say? Make disciples. And he just left it there, right? Go figure out what that means. No, he made it explicit. Jesus was an expert teacher. He was a fantastic rabbi. He said, let me break down what that means. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I want you to teach them everything I have commanded. He said, go and make disciples. You're like, okay, what exactly? Ah, what, what? I mean, I mean, Jesus, that's so, what exactly could that mean? He said, all right, let me break it down even further. You're going to baptize them, and then you're going to teach them to obey. You're going to baptize them, and you're going to teach them to obey. Here's my burden here. I don't think, as especially American and North American Christians, that we struggle with the teaching side of things. I actually think we're pretty decent at this. Now, there are some whack teachers and false teachers, but by and large, this is the most robust season of biblical teaching, I think, in the history of humanity. Like, you could find some of the hardiest, limitless Bible teaching at the click of a button. It's called YouTube. Any Bible teaching, you're like, I wonder what exactly, when Paul speaks of the third heaven, what exactly is he referencing? Google it. Boom, you're going to find a bunch of different opinions. Like, we live in a world of Bible teaching. I don't think we neglect this, but I do think we neglect the baptizing. See, here's the problem. I don't think we neglect the baptizing haphazardly and accidentally. I think we neglect this important mandate that, by the way, is tethered to the call to make disciples because of our culture. See, what baptism does offends our modern sensibilities. Baptism highlights the need for new birth, the need for a new name, the need for new authority, and the need for a new nature, which flies in the face of the gospel that our culture preaches. Now, wait a second. I I thought... I thought Christians only preach the gospel. Nah, 
The gospel just means good news, and our culture preaches the gospel. It's just not true. Here's the gospel of our culture. Our culture tells us, man, Michelle, you don't need anything else. Everything you have is all in you. The gospel of our culture is, man, let me tell you, Jamie, Jamie, you, you don't need anybody else. You don't need, you don't need God. You don't need religion. All you need is all you have. The only issue in your life is society that's holding you back. You got it, Jamie. Go do it. And here's what, we, here's what religion does. We sang this song, tear down the walls of our religion. Like, what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. Here's what religion does. Religion is like trying to convince a caterpillar to fly. You come up to a little caterpillar and you're like, little caterpillar, do you know who you are? You know what Mariah Carey sung about you? Yeah, 90s kids, y'all know it. Spread your wings. Okay, I'm not gonna go there. Do you know what you could do? You can fly. You can be a butterfly. You, you know what you need to do? You need to get up on that. You need to find the tallest tree you can and you work real hard and you climb up to the top of that tree and then you jump off and you watch what's gonna happen. And we're like, I, 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 I don't think that's a good idea. I feel like, I'm the, I, I feel like that's not, no, you, don't you dare. The only thing wrong with you it's the limitations in your mind. Caterpillar, you get up on that tree. So a little caterpillar gets up there and they're like, all right. Woo! I'm not going to jump. Woo! And what happens? <laughs> Dead caterpillar. Why? Because the possibility was there, but they have to undergo metamorphosis first. If we're not careful, here's what religion does. Man, all you little caterpillars, you can do it. You got this. You can make this happen. All you need is all you have. It's already inside of you. Climb up to the top of that tree, work a little bit harder, and you can make this thing happen. And religion is bringing together a bunch of caterpillars and telling them if they try hard enough, they can get up to that limb and fly. And we can't. I mean, if there's anything life has proven to us, because we have to morph first. We got to grow wings first. All the potential is there, and we have been created for it, no doubt. But you got to morph before you can fly. Here's where I'm going with this. If all we do is teach people to obey without first calling them to enter into covenant obedience through baptism, it is like trying to teach caterpillars caterpillars to fly you will disappoint them you will wound them and ultimately you will spiritually kill them at the end of the day and if or when we tell people to obey the words of the father and the son and the holy spirit without first baptizing them in the name and the power and the authority we set them up for sorrow every single time and jesus is a genius Jesus is a genius. Jesus knows that we will only consistently act in ways that are consistent with who we think we are. This is why identity comes first. This is why baptism is essential to make disciples. This is why it's not just behavior modification and performance improvement. The message of the gospel is you can't just flap your non-existent wings and will them into existence. You must morph. You got to. It's the only hope for John Lash, and it's still the only hope for John Lash, and it's the only hope for you as well. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. This is why the context for teaching them to obey is baptizing them to understand that he has made them new. Do you understand this better now? You're like, what do I do with it? Here's what I want you to do. 
If you're here, if you're watching online, if you're watching later on demand, and you have not been baptized yet, here is the application. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. If you're here in the room, if you're watching online, and you have not yet been baptized, repent and be baptized. Let me break down really briefly. Repentance is a shifting of the mind. It is saying, you know what, Jesus, up to this point, you've been a God, you've been a teacher, you've been a voice, you've been a mentor in my sort of spiritual democracy, but no longer, Jesus, you're the Lord. Jesus, you're the king. Jesus, you're the CEO. I repent. Metanoia, it's a changing of the mind, which precipitates a changing of the heart and ultimately a changing of the life. This is repentance. Baptism, you remember, is the sign, it is the outward symbol of the inward decision you have made in repentance. It's what Jesus said. You're like, well, do I, do I, Pastor John, do I have to be baptized to be saved? Bad question. It's like saying, do you have to kiss your wife? Right? We would all say if someone's like, well, do I have to kiss my wife? It's like, uh, you got some issues there, buddy. Like, there's some problems. If you're asking the question, it points to some fundamental problems in your relationship. I'm like, I get to kiss my wife. I like kissing my wife. I don't know how she feels about me, but hopefully she likes it sometimes too. But um, the, the point being here, if Jesus said, go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them, if you want to be a disciple, guess what you should do? Get baptized and start learning to obey everything that he commanded. Now, if you're here and you're like, well, I've already been baptized. Sweet. I don't have to do anything with this message. This is awesome. You've been crumbing the greenhouse long enough to know that is not, I'm not gonna let you off that easy. Here's the application point for you. If you've already been baptized, much like Peter and James and John, who would have heard this message and been baptized already before, what Jesus is now commissioning them to is to move to help others be baptized and learn to follow Jesus as well. He is now commanding them to be clear, not suggesting, commanding them to lead other people to be baptized. Here's my application point for you if you've already repented and been baptized, if you're already a follower of Jesus. Are you making disciples? It's one thing to go to a church where that's the mission. It's another thing for John Lash. If I'm being honest, I am part of a church that the mission is to make disciples. And yet there have been seasons of my life, much like at the end of 2020, where I felt strongly rebuked and challenged by the Lord. And he said, son, you got to step up what you're doing because you're not being faithful to what I've called you to. Are we making disciples? And specifically, according to Jesus, lest we leave it vague, he said, and here's what I mean by that. Are you baptizing them and teaching them to obey? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you baptized someone? Have you, have you ever had the privilege of doing that? Maybe you did and you're like, man, I remember. And it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 20 years ago. Have you done it recently? This is the great privilege of the gospel where we get to partner with the Lord and what he's doing on the earth. Parents, pray for your kids to be baptized. Friends, pray for your coworkers and your neighbors and your colleagues to be baptized. If there is a person in your life that has never been baptized, then you are in their life to pull off Matthew 28, 19, according to the sovereignty of God. You are a secret agent and secret weapon for the king of kings who loves them. Ask God for the joy of obeying this command from Jesus to make disciples, baptizing them 
and teaching them. My, my dream is that this year you add a goal. If you're already a goal setter and you've got your little vision board, you add one component to that vision board. And it is this year, by the grace of God, because I already know the provision of Jesus is there because he called me to do it, I am going to make a disciple, baptizing them and teaching them. You know, by the way, I'm sure you know this, the average Christian, when they're polled, has never done this even once. This is the clear call from Jesus, and, and I get it, and there's no shame here, but I do think we need to highlight the awkwardness of the moment. Like, if you were a boss, pretend for a moment that you were a boss and your company sold widgets, and everyone in your company was all excited about the widgets, and, and they would get together in focus groups talking about the benefits of the widget, and, and they would have these little small groups where they got together and went over the instruction manual about how good the widgets were, and they would, they would laud and talk about, man, it's so great, and they would weep about the widgets, and they love the widgets, oh, I love the widgets! And then you get the annual sales report, and they haven't sold anything all quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter after quarter. Eventually, it would be a pretty awkward conversation with your staff. Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. What, what's up with our disconnect, especially as Americans and North Americans? And I think it's just because we don't see spiritual maturity like God sees it. We're largely intellectual. If you want to use a biblical framework, we're much more Greek than we are Hebrew. And so we see spiritual maturity is our, in our abundance of knowledge, what we know. And James in the infinite wisdom of God is reminding us, for God's spiritual maturity is not about what you know, it is about what you do with what you know. Can, can I just challenge you as your pastor? Go make a disciple. This world is hurting, this world is broken. This world is longing for someone that says, hey man, I, I don't have it all together, and I'm kind of a mess, and we're kind of a mess, but I met a man Remember the woman at the well? She said, let, let, let me, I don't know all the theological language, but let me show you a man who, taught, who told me everything I did. Could he be the Messiah? It just starts with caring. It just starts with wanting. It just starts with wanting to want. God, I, I, I want this desire, but I don't have this desire. Lord, help me. Jesus, help me. If you're nervous, if you feel ill-equipped, man, join the club. Look around, that's all of us. But God promised he has already given us everything we need. Second Peter says, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And I get it, it's scary and it's challenging and the uncertainty of the unknown. And if I bring up spiritual conversations with my colleagues or my coworkers or how, how is that gonna work and, and what are they gonna think of me and how is this gonna go? And at some point out of love for God and genuine love for people, we ask God to move us beyond ourselves to go and make disciples baptizing them and teaching them, baptizing them and teaching them. Jesus knew it was a challenge. Jesus knew it was scary. Jesus knew it was gonna be hard, which is why he went first. I'm gonna close it here, worship team, and then we'll land in a final chorus together. I talked about the nature of the covenant. I talked about the sign of the covenant, and I talked about the response to the covenant, but not about the means of the covenant. Namely, how was this covenant made possible? See, covenant is not a new thing. It's, it's, maybe it's a little strange for us, but it was very familiar in the ancient world, and here's how it worked. In the ancient world, if you were privileged to cut a covenant with someone more powerful than you, the groundwork was already laid and the expectation was clear from the very beginning. 
If push comes to shove, whoever is the higher authority, whoever has more clout, whoever has more land, whoever has more wealth, whoever has more power, they get the best. And if it comes down to it, the lesser always gives their life for the more powerful. This was the nature of covenant. You signed up for this deal because you're like, listen, I don't really bring much to the table. They're the one kind of that has a lot more than I do. And so this is how it goes down. And, and then here comes Jesus. And John the Baptist aptly said, behold, it's, he's the Lamb of God. He's taking away the sins of the world. He's the promised Messiah. John said he was with God. In, he was with God in the beginning. By him and through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing has been made. Here comes God in skin, Jesus the Messiah. And he says, hey, listen, I want to invite you into covenant. And everyone already knew what that meant. I mean, it's a good deal. I mean, I, he, he's the king and, and I'm a nobody. And, and he... He has everything and I've got kind of nothing. And, he, and, and everyone was already ready for what this meant, which by the way, why religion is so natural to us. You don't have to be a religious person to be religious. Everyone realizes if it's God we're talking about, then I gotta do and I gotta work and I gotta earn and I gotta flex and I gotta try because no one gives anything for free. And here comes King Jesus, who needed nothing from no one, who was over all and in all and through all. And he says, hey, listen, here's the covenant. And we said, oh, yes, I know. And we were bracing for it. And he said, you got to go in the grave. And we said, I knew it. And he said, but your grave is just baptism waters. The uniqueness of the covenant with Jesus is not the fact that he's just Lord. It's that he died. And for any who are humble enough to acknowledge their need for a change, for any who are desperate enough to realize what I'm doing now is not working, we are invited to, to unite in his death through baptism, to be raised to newness of like, just like Jesus was out of that tomb. And it was in my heart this morning to, to give one more opportunity Maybe you came last weekend, maybe you've coming around for a few months or a few, for the entire year and, and something has been stirring in your heart and we've come to these moments at the end of service and you're like, ah, and, and your palms start sweating and you're like, ah, ah, and you know something's happening but every time you're like, no, no, not, not today, not today, I'm thinking about it and ah, not today and, and, and I need to tell you, friend, tomorrow is not guaranteed. The moment of salvation is in front of you right now and there is a God in heaven who loves you. I cannot, I cannot even fathom better hands to place your life in than the hands of the one who in cutting covenant with you gave his life so that you could be free. For those of you in the room, this is that moment. If God's been stirring in your heart all morning long and you have not yet repented, this is your moment to repent. If God's been stirring in your heart and at some point you did pray a prayer, you did repent, but you have never been baptized, we've got clothes, we've got a tank, we've got water. It's like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What should forbid you from being baptized? Nothing. We are ready. And he is willing. Why don't you join me as we pray? Jesus, I'm asking right now that by your grace and through your kindness, you would call us to repentance. If you're here this morning and and you are not yet in covenant relationship with Jesus, meaning he is not Lord. He might be a, a, a great advisor and you like his input, but you don't go with his input. You go with your thoughts and ideas over his. And this morning you wanna make a shift. 
This morning, you want to enter into the joy of covenant. This morning, you want to make the declaration, not just with your words, but with your life, Jesus Christ is Lord. I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. If that's you, wherever you're at, I want you to raise your hand right now. You said, that's me, John. Awesome. That's me, John. I'm, I'm in. If you have not yet repented, wherever you're watching from, online, on demand, or in the room, right now you can just utter these words, Jesus, you're the Lord. Jesus, you're the King. I go your way every single time. If you have repented and you have not yet been baptized, today is your day. This is your moment. If you're watching online, we, you can respond right there in the chat. You can, you can say, hey, I want to get baptized. We'll figure it out. We'll go out to the beach. We'll find a swimming pool. We'll social distance it up. We will make this thing happen. Do not delay obedience any longer because what is at the other side of your obedience is the joy of your Father in heaven. Repent and be baptized. And if you're here and you're already in covenant relationship with Jesus, but you want to walk in obedience, you realize that it's time to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them wherever you're at. I just want you to say, Jesus, you're the Lord. 90% of followers of Jesus have never even made one disciple, and it was a clear, explicit command of Jesus to everyone who would follow him. Lord, that's not going to be me anymore. I'm terrified. I get spiritual apprehension just thinking about it, but Lord, I love you more than anything. Lord, help me, teach me to make a disciple. And by the way, we'd love to come alongside you to help you do that as well. That is literally why we exist. If you're watching online, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to help you in your journey. We would love to walk with you through repentance and baptism. You can text Jesus to the number on the screen. You can reach out in the chat, especially if you're on the church online platform right there, praying God would bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious, lift up his countenance and give you shalom, shalom, perfect peace in Jesus' name. God bless you, friends. And we'll see you this week online.